Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 86, The Dominion of New England. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. One of the best ways to support the show is to buy a copy of our book, Volume 1 of A History of the United States, A New World, 1607-1677, is available to buy right now on Amazon. In our last episode, we looked at William Penn, Quakerism, and the foundation of Philadelphia. He received a charter for a vast area of land, and he quickly got to work settling the area. In 1681, he sent over the first group of his colonists, so that by the end of the year there were about a thousand settlers there, and he himself arrived in October. He inspected the area and was pleased with what he saw, and spent the winter at the Swedish town of Upland, which had now been renamed Chester. From there, he moved up the Delaware River to the site of a capital for the province. The previous year, Penn had sent ahead a group of commissioners to select a site, and they chose one on the west bank of the Delaware River. They began to set it up, and it was progressing nicely when Penn arrived. The streets were paved out, lots were being sold, and houses were being built. It was a great location, and would rapidly expand so that there were 600 houses within two years. Penn named the location the City of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia. By 1683, it is thought that the population stood at 3,000 as the Quaker migration got underway. I should note that not all migrants to Pennsylvania were Quakers, there were also an element of Anglicans who would form a core of opposition to Penn within the colony. However, the Quaker migration was a very interesting migration. The Quakers were usually well off and maintained a frugal lifestyle. They brought plenty of supplies with them when they crossed the Atlantic and found a healthy and fertile land. They also benefited from a positive relationship with the local Indians, something which had previously been established by the Dutch and Swedes, as well as the English of New York. They entered into numerous agreements with Penn, who actually stuck to his side of the deal. This set the tone for Pennsylvania's foreign policy for the next half century, until Penn was succeeded by his less scrupulous sons. There were, though, it must be noted, other factors. For example, there was an element of Scotch-Irish Presbyterian migration to Pennsylvania. They did not like the Quakers, but they really did not like the Indians. They didn't view them as people to buy land off, but rather people to be exterminated. They usually settled on the frontier and caused numerous incidents, though they were good fighters and secured the safety of the colony's interior. The laws of the new colony were rather mild for the time, emphasising the reformation possibilities of prison rather than simple punishment, and having comparatively large degrees of religious toleration. Anyone who worshipped one almighty and eternal God was allowed to do so as they wished, although office holders had to be Christians. This was partly what made Pennsylvania 
the go-to destination for the various persecuted sects of Europe, although the policy of selling land at reasonable rates was also very attractive. The people also had a voice in the government of the colony. A proprietor could appoint a governor, but compared to the other governors of colonial North America, it was a weak office. The governor had no veto, and was more a president of the governing council. The council was very powerful, and acted as the executive of the colony, made appointments to other officers, and had the power to initiate legislation. These councillors were, along with the assemblymen, elected by the freemen of the colony. The assembly consisted of 36 members, six from each of the six counties of the colony. As the size of the colony increased, so would the size of the assembly. Of these six original counties, three comprised what would become Delaware. Penn's time in Pennsylvania was not long. He only spent two years there before returning to England, feeling that that was where he could best serve the interests of the colony, fighting Lord Baltimore over the border with Maryland. He returned once more in 1699 and stayed again for two years. Penn, you'll recall, was very close with the Stuarts. His father had been a key supporter in the Restoration and was friendly with King Charles II, and the younger Penn inherited this relationship, along with the king's brother, the Duke of York, who became King James II in 1685. I won't repeat myself too much here, because we've already spent several episodes dealing with James and the Glorious Revolution. James promoted policies of toleration, which benefited the Quakers, although this was done more in the interests of Catholics than the Quakers, but still, it did benefit the Quakers. Most were opposed to the extra-constitutional mechanisms used by James for these ends, but Penn believed that James was well-intentioned. He became a close advisor of James, and so shared in the displeasure placed in the direction of the king. He lost much support from his fellow Quakers, and he was placed in an uncomfortable position when James fell from power, and was replaced by William and Mary. The situation was not improved by events in the province. The Anglicans in Pennsylvania were solidifying in their opposition, and they charged Penn with neglect of the colony for his absenteeism, lack of defence of the frontiers, and lack of resources. Just when things couldn't get any worse, Delaware broke out in revolt. This was enough for William to suspend Penn of his powers, a state of affairs which lasted for two years until he was reinstated in 1694. The constitution was slightly modified to give the assembly the right to initiate legislation. The council was now appointed rather than elected, and lost its ability to legislate, it would not concentrate on administration, and was principally a body to advise the governor. Quite clearly, the Glorious Revolution had a major effect on Pennsylvania, as it did for the other colonies. When Charles II first ascended to the throne, he found that New England had become rather separated from the motherland, essentially becoming independent republics. 
Massachusetts was by far the dominant power, and it had used this position to gradually absorb Maine and New Hampshire, theoretically independent colonies that had suffered from lack of migration. You'll recall the confusing mess that was the situation concerning land grants in New England from our old episodes, and if you don't, hey, why don't you order a History of the United States Volume 1, now available on Amazon, hey. But anyway, it was a confusing situation, and in 1664, Charles sent over some commissioners so that he could see exactly what the situation was on the ground. Massachusetts found this insulting, and was uncooperative, which in turn insulted Charles. The king ordered Massachusetts to send representatives to England to explain themselves, which they then refused to do. Open rebellion would have broken out had England not become distracted with the Third Anglo-Dutch War, which we've already covered. Once peace was brought about in 1674, Charles again ordered Massachusetts to send over representatives. Edward Randolph was sent as a special messenger to New England, and on the advice of the clergy, Massachusetts did indeed send agents back to England. In London, Randolph sharply criticised the colony. He was doubtlessly offended by his rude reception, but the charges were largely true. The agents were unable to defend the actions of the colony. The royal response was that Massachusetts should ask for a pardon for coining money, agree to enforce the navigation laws to stop the booming smuggling industry, take a supplementary royal charter, agree to the appointment of an official to oversee royal revenue, and to undo laws that were against those of England. Massachusetts showed no sign of agreeing to this. Time passed. Indeed, while all this was going on, King Philip's War was breaking out in New England. We focused on that the last time we covered New England, and this was more background theatre, but as we advanced the narrative, a drastic step was taken. In October 1684, the Charter of Massachusetts was annulled. The Crown thought that it had no choice. It could not let a colony flout its orders. It would set a horrible precedent that could end in complete independence of the colonies. This actually led to a few liberal steps in the colony, such as increasing religious toleration and ending the requirement that voters had to be part of the Congressional Church. The cancelling of the Charter meant that a new plan of government had to be created. The solution was the Dominion of New England. The Dominion of New England saw the elimination of Massachusetts, Plymouth, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, East Jersey, and West Jersey, to be replaced with a larger administrative unit similar to the Viceroyalty of New Spain. The Crown would appoint a governor and a council who would have all judicial and executive powers except for a few judicial cases involving more than £300, which would be resolved by the King and Council. These officials 
had the authority to create new laws and to levy taxes. There would be no assembly. A few of the king's advisers wanted an assembly, but the king, now James II, who succeeded Charles in 1685, insisted on its removal. Joseph Dudley was appointed governor for seven months, but he was replaced by Sir Edmund Andros in December 1686. Andros had been the governor of New York. There were obvious benefits and obvious problems. I'll finish this episode with a quote from Oliver Chitwood in his A History of Colonial America. Quote, If the plan could have been carried out successfully, there would have been decided advantages from the viewpoint of the empire in having so much territory under single control. It would guarantee a uniform policy with reference to the Indians and would make it easier for people within that wide area to present a united front against the common enemy. But the difficulties of keeping so many colonies under one government were insuperable. Local patriotism and religious and other differences rendered cooperation well nigh impossible. Besides, the greatness of the area, coupled with the scarcity of the means of communication, made it very difficult for the rulers, and very inconvenient for the people, to have the administration of the whole dominion carried on from one central point. This experiment in government would probably, therefore, have failed even if conditions in other respects had been favourable but conditions in other respects were most unfavourable. No royal governor would have been acceptable to the deposed oligarchy in New England, even though he had been in a position to give the people a wise rule. Moreover, under the new arrangement, the chief executive of the province was, by instruction from the king, committed to an unwise and autocratic policy. Any programme, therefore, that he might map out was predestined to arouse enough opposition to cause its failure. Besides, Andros had an impulsive temper and a lack of tact that aggravated the difficulties of the situation. End quote. As you can see, the experiment seemed likely to fail completely, as indeed it did. We'll get into that more fully next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more information online. There is the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, our social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, at historyjamie on Twitter, and you can send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.